Everyone doing okay? <laughs> uh, wow. Okay. All right. So some good news. Um, and this may be for a lot of the people at home. This is, this is good news. Um, so we, we're shooting for the first week of September, opening our nursery back up and opening up our middle school, Eon, back up on the weekends, right? No one cares. You enjoy holding your baby the whole time you're listening to me preach, right? Throwing up on you, crawling all over your head, right? This is wonderful. Um, we'll have a nursery back open. That's, that's good. Okay, now I'm, I'm nervous to tell you my two next stories. Um, okay, so the other day we do... Um, we, Fridays, normal Fridays during the school year are my day dates. My wife and I, we usually go out and we'll get like a, like a nice lunch and, and we'll, you know, walk around and hang out, get a cup of coffee, talk, and just our day dates. That's what we do on, on Fridays. And then typically a Friday night in our home are like our movie nights. So we'll rent a movie or we'll get something on, you know, we'll watch something we haven't seen on Netflix or Hulu or something. And we pop a bunch of popcorn and eat a bunch of junk food and, and we just watch a movie and have a good time in our living room, that's usually our, uh, our, our Friday nights or movie nights, even though the last five months, of, months have been like a perpetual movie night. But anyways, so we're back to our normal movie nights. And so this Friday, we rented the new Scooby-Doo movie, which was actually really good. And, uh, <laughs> and um, we're watching the new Scooby-Doo movie, and, and my youngest pauses it at the beginning, and she says, Dad, let's have a dance-off. And I'm like, okay. And so we throw on something from like, <laughs> like the drive soundtrack or something and some techno music and, and she does her thing and dances like crazy. And then it's my turn and I get up there and it's because it's my home, it's my kids. And I'm like, just dancing like a nutcase, right? And like, like doing my techno dance and all this stuff. And if you ever see my house, um, if you look at my house, when you look into the front door, which is all glass, you see right into our living room and you see exactly where I sit during movie night and where I would have been dancing on Friday night. And so, you know, we have our big dance off. It was rigged. My oldest voted for our youngest. She was the winner. Anyways, so we get done and my wife gets a text and uh, she looks down and she goes, oh, uh, a friend of ours just dropped something off at our front door. And I was like, what? <laughs> she goes, yeah. I said, what time? And she goes and she's calculating what it, when, it, when it would have been. And she's like, about the time you're, you're dancing in the living room. And I was like, that's fantastic. And it made me think of another story in my life when I was in college, right before I got married, I was about to graduate and I just got a, a, a job teaching at uh, Smyrna High School. I used to live at a loft on the square, right off the square. And um, my loft was almost all windows in the top of this, this building. And in the summer, it was great. When the trees were blooming, when everything was good, you couldn't hardly see in. So I didn't really have to worry about privacy much. But whenever it got colder out and the trees weren't blooming, if you didn't draw the shades or draw the blinds, like you could just see right in my place. And so it was, it was like the fall. There was no leaves on the trees. And um, I had just gotten out of the shower. I wasn't naked. I was wearing underwear, but I shouldn't be telling this. I don't even know why I'm telling this. <laughs> anyway, so, so, so I'm, I'm, I'm wearing underwear. <laughs> this is a true story. I'm listening to Walking on Sunshine and I'm like 80s dancing, like Molly Ringwald dancing in my loft and I'm doing the dishes and I'm like drying off the dishes and I'm like, you know, walking on sunshine, dancing around, all stuff. And all of a sudden I look out and there's this old woman in the building next to me just going, <laughs> just staring at me. And so I stop and I just kind of go down and I get on the floor and I put the plate on and I crawl back to my room and put on some clothes and then go back to the drapes and like on the floor and just kind of close them all around the thing. That's it. That's my story. That's, uh, that's it. Get to the Bible, Corey. Yes. Yes, I'll do that. 
So we have been in the Gospel of Matthew for quite some time. If you haven't been with us, we're at a really interesting part in the Gospel of Matthew. We're in chapter 19 this week, if you have your Bible with you. First book of the New Testament, we're in the 19th chapter. We're gonna do about, about 75% of it. We won't get all the way through it. But where we're at, and where we kind of finished up in chapter 18, is Jesus is, is very intentionally pouring into his 12 disciples because he has a limited amount of time. What that means is, is Jesus is about to willingly walk towards his own death. So because he has kind of this limited window, he's been, he's been taking his disciples up in more of the rural parts of Israel. He's pouring into them. He's teaching them lessons. He's kind of gotten away from the crowd. At the end of chapter 18, we are talking about different responsibilities that Christians have. So Jesus is teaching his followers you're responsible for this, you're responsible for that. And one of the things that they're gonna be responsible for, that we're responsible for, is to show mercy, to show grace. In so much where Jesus even gives us the, the process by which to do it, that if someone offends us or if someone is, is living sinful, how we're to approach them, one-on-one, -on -one, if that doesn't work, two or three-on-one, if that doesn't work, get the church involved in order to hopefully restore relationships, to show mercy, to show love, to give people a pathway back to the family, right? So we talked about last week. It's our responsibility to be the light, to be the salt, right? to be gracious, loving people. Now, as we move into chapter 19, Jesus is gonna take his disciples out of the more rural areas. He's gonna go into the more populated areas. He's gonna start heading towards the capital, which is where he's gonna be crucified. And we're gonna talk about two kind of uh, uh, interesting but uncomfortable topics today. The first one in chapter 19 we're gonna talk about is divorce. That's never an easy topic to talk about, but we're going to talk about that. And the reason we're going to talk about it is because the Bible mentions it. So we're, we can't skip over the hard stuff. We have to address it, okay? And we'll do that today. The second thing that we're going to hang out on at the end is we're going to meet a character in the, in the New Testament that's become kind of infamous. We call him the rich young ruler, this wealthy young guy that comes up to Jesus and says, hey, how do I go to heaven? And Jesus is going to lay it out. And what we're going to do is we're going to ask ourselves at the end of this lesson, are we willing to give up everything? Even the things that maybe not even be sinful things, but our marriages, our finances, our political views, or whatever the case may be. Are we willing to, to hand everything over and trust God with all those things? Are we willing to lay it all down, right? And so I won't tell you the ending of this, this part that we're gonna talk about today, but this man you know, had a choice, and we're gonna see how he chose in that instance. Then we have to think about how we would choose in that instance, okay? All right? So if you have your Bible with you, first page, uh, I'm sorry, first book of the New Testament, 19th chapter. Again, we'll go to verse 22. You should have got a notes handout when you walked in. It has everything I'm gonna say in there for the most part. Everything will be on the screens. If you're watching at home, the bottom third of your screen will have the, the, the notes pop up on it kind of as I speak them. And um, we should be in good shape. If you have the app, that's the best way to follow along. It has a scripture and um, notes in there. Okay, all right. I'm gonna pray. Hopefully you guys are ready to rock and roll and, um, and we'll see where God takes us, okay? Father, Lord, we love you. God, I wanna thank you for this church, Lord. I wanna thank you, God, that, that, that we can laugh every once in a while. We need to be able to do that, God. I, I wanna thank you, Lord, for the comfortable environment in here. I wanna thank you, God, for the hungry people who, who come to hear your word be taught, even the difficult parts of your word. Father, I pray everyone at home watching that you bless them and keep your hand on them. God, I pray that you keep your hand on everyone in this room. We pray not only for our church, Father, we pray for every church in our city. Pray for the nonprofits of our city. 
Uh, Lord, we pray for our government, local, federal, God. Pray, Lord, that you give us wisdom. Pray, Lord, that you help us discern where to go in our culture and in our, our country right now, God. And we pray that everything that we talk about today, everything from your word, Lord, we pray that it honors you. And we pray that it strengthens us, God, your body, your bride. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We give this day to you. And uh, we pray all these things in your son's name, God. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. I'm going to read a little bit of chapter 19. We'll go back and we'll break it down. Okay, here we go. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he departed from Galilee and went into the region of Judea across the Jordan. Large crowds followed him and he healed them there. Some Pharisees approached him to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife on any grounds? Haven't you read, Jesus replied, that he who created them in the beginning made them male and female. Also, he said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. So like I said, they've been hanging out in more rural countryside. And the reason why, so Jesus could talk to his disciples without any kind of interruption. But they're going to travel back into more populated areas. They're going to get closer to the capital city in the region of Judea. And because they're getting closer to the capital, the Pharisees show up again. Now, if you haven't been here, the Pharisees are the religious leaders. Not all of them are bad, but the majority of them are. They're kind of the antagonists of the gospel, okay? So the Pharisees who've been trying to kind of trap Jesus one way or another because they hate him, they come up to him again, and they're going to use the topic of divorce to try to trap Jesus into saying the wrong thing. Now, divorce has always been a difficult topic, Always. And we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about it a lot today because that's just how we're going to do it, okay? So the subject of divorce has always been sensitive, so sensitive that in John the Baptist's time, that's what got him killed. John called out an unlawful divorce for the, the governor of that area, and that's what cost John his head. So the Pharisees knew that this was a sensitive topic and it could get people killed, right? So they thought if they could trap Jesus into this topic, well, maybe their problem will be solved. So they come at Jesus with this question of divorce. Now, here's what Jesus always does. I say this all the time. We usually come at Jesus kind of on this veneer surface level, and Jesus isn't satisfied with surface level. He wants to go deeper. So he's going to take this topic of divorce, and he's going to say, whoa, 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 wait a second. The topic of divorce is irrelevant because we have to talk about what is a good marriage first. We have to talk about how big of a deal marriage is and what it should be. So first and foremost, Jesus establishes that marriage is a God thing. It is a Christian institution, and no person has the authority to tear apart what God has put together. So Jesus is going to set the bar real high. Marriage is also a different season of life. Genesis 2.24 is what Jesus is quoting here. For a man will leave his father and mother and he will cling or he will be joined to his wife and the two will become one flesh. What that means is this. There is this deeply spiritual transaction that takes place when two people get married. And when you choose to get married, you are choosing to grow up. You are choosing to mature. You're choosing to be an adult. Because what's happening, the reason why I wrote umbrellas up, up there, is whenever I do premarital counseling, 
just to stress how much of a responsibility marriage is, I draw two umbrellas on my whiteboard in my office. The first umbrella represents your family, your parents, and the authority that your parents have over you. They're your umbrella. What happens when you get married is is you come out from the umbrella of your parents and now you are making an umbrella that your kids will fall under and, and so you have created a new authority, right? And there comes responsibility with that, independence with that. You're coming out from this and now you are the authority in this and that takes maturity, takes growing up. And again, what happens is this two people become one. Like I said, marriage is a deeply spiritual thing. And marriage should be a constant reminder of our marriage to our Savior. We are the bride, the church. He is our husband, right? All throughout the Bible, God uses this analogy of his bride and he being the husband. And now look, if you're single in here, this doesn't mean you're any less than anyone else. But marriage on earth should be our greatest reminder of our eternity with our our husband, God, right? So marriage is kind of the closest representation of our relationship with God. And so understanding that marriage is deeply spiritual, understanding that God takes marriage extremely seriously, we are to love our spouse like they're literally a part of us, like we're connected, we're one, which means we cannot give up on them so easily. This is a great passage, man. If you want to know how to have a healthy marriage in here, Ephesians chapter 5. Just read that through. And if every man and woman in this room who is married would do these things, you'd have a fantastic marriage. It says this. Now, as the church submits to Christ, wives are to submit to their husbands in everything. I can't tell you how many men have sat in my office and like, see, Corey, Bible says it. She's got to do the dishes every time I tell her to do it. She's got to do this. She's got to do that. And I'm like, hold on there, cowboy. Let's keep reading a little bit. (laughs) Husbands, love your wife as Christ loves the church and gave himself for her. So whenever those those guys are like, she's supposed to submit, and I'm like, have you loved her the way Jesus has loved you? And I bet if you have, she would love to submit to that, but you haven't done your part. It's a mutual submission. It's a mutual sacrifice. It's a mutual giving. In the same way, husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one hates his own flesh, but provides and cares for it just as Christ does for the church. I love how Paul does this. To sum it up, this is how easy it is to have a good marriage. Each of you is to love your wife as yourself, and wives, you are to respect your husband. And if every woman in this room respected and revered their husband, and if every husband in this room treated their wife like Jesus treats you with grace and mercy and provision and everything else, if everyone would do that, that mutual submission would come together, it would honor God, and you'd have a fantastic home life. The problem is, is we get selfish. That's our problem. Here's another thing to take from this part that I just read from you. Kind of a changing of gears, a a, a shifting of lanes, if you will. A lot of people will say, because Jesus doesn't directly speak about gender and sexuality, that it's okay to to identify as different genders or to have same-sex relationships. And so if you Google that, people say, well, only Paul talks about that. So there's a movement to remove Paul from the Bible because they say Jesus never directly speaks about it. And that is absolutely not true. In Matthew chapter 19, Jesus defines what a marriage is. He defines what gender is, and he defines what sexuality should look like. And here's the thing. If one defines what something is, you don't have to define everything it is not. You with me? If we go out to the parking lot and I say, this is a car, I don't have to tell you that it's not a tree. I don't have to tell you that it's not the clouds. 
It's a car. So if we define what something is, if we define what marriage is, we don't have to define everything it is not. And Jesus clearly defines it. Listen, the Bible is not ambiguous about gender and sexuality. It is very, very clear. Okay, just want to throw that out there. Why then, they asked him, did Moses command us to give divorce papers and to send her away? Jesus told him, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because of the hardness of your hearts, but it was not like that from the beginning. I tell you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. His disciples said to him, if this is the relationship of a man and his wife, if it's like this, better not to get married. He responded, not everyone can accept this saying, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb. There are eunuchs who are made that way by men, and there are eunuchs that have made themselves that way because of the kingdom of heaven. The one who is able to accept it should accept it. So the Pharisees walk up to Jesus and they say, hey, Jesus, even Moses commanded that people get divorced, and they actually misquoted the Bible that they were supposed to be the scholars of. And Matthew records what they said, not was actually biblically accurate. In the 22nd chapter of, uh, chapter of Deuteronomy, it doesn't say Moses commanded divorce. It says that Moses permitted divorce. So Jesus kind of clarifies that. The reason why Moses permitted divorce way back in the beginning of the Old Testament is a lot of men would leave their wives for unsubstantial reasons and it would basically render the women valueless. They couldn't do anything. They could never remarry. Their lives were ruined and they were abandoned by their husbands for no good reason. So there's a couple of interesting things that come up here. And one of the interesting things that comes up is look at how much care God has for women. Whenever people say Christianity is a misogynistic religion or is anti-woman, that is absolutely not true. In fact, Christianity is the most progressive faith in the world when it comes to the treatment of women. Even way back in the Torah, in the first five books of the Bible, God has Moses say certain things because women were being treated unfairly. It is God's intention that we never get divorced. God does not want that. Jesus even says it wasn't, it wasn't like that in the beginning. We weren't supposed to go down this road, but Jesus also knew it was going to happen. He wasn't surprised by it. So we have to talk about the elephant in the room, don't we? Because about 10 years ago, the divorce rate in the United States was 60%. Now, that's actually gone down to 40%. Everyone's like, yeah, no, no, don't, don't celebrate. The only reason why the divorce rate has gone down to 40% is because the rate of people that don't even get married is now 29% of all couples. So if you add those two together, you have 69% of all couples who are either divorced or going to get divorced or are living in a sinful manner. Now, what that means is that the majority of us in this room have either been a part of a, a painful divorce. We have been children. My parents are divorced. We have been children of a divorced family or people are living in a sinful manner and they're not married and they're, they're having relationships like they're married. This isn't good. This means a lot of people are going to be hurt. A lot of hard times are going to come because we're not doing it the way God wants us to do it. Now, the Bible says in Malachi that God hates divorce. Now, listen, that doesn't mean that hates, God hates people who get divorced. God hates divorce because divorce hurts people. Not my divorce, Corey. It was amicable. It was great. Ask your kids. Ask your kids how they thought about it, right? 
No divorce is pretty. No divorce is great. It just doesn't happen. And so God wants us to hold into account why we abandon marriage so quickly. So here's the thing. Divorce is always a result of someone being selfish. It's always because someone has been selfish somewhere in that equation. And so when it comes to considering a divorce, we have to go back to the Bible and ask ourselves, do we have biblical grounds to take this step? So what are the biblical grounds? Well, one of the three that I can find in the Bible, Jesus mentions twice in the book of Matthew, one in chapter 19 and one back in chapter five, and that is infidelity. That if someone has an affair, someone cheats on their spouse, you have the right to leave. Paul also talks about abandonment and abuse. If your husband refuses to pay bills and works and basically doesn't do what he's supposed to do in that regard, or he disappears for a long time, or if someone's getting physically abused or mentally abused, Paul says that the covenant has been broken, right? What you have promised to do, you are not living up to. Now, so those things are biblical reasons. Listen, just because marriage gets tough is not a biblical reason to divorce. You made a covenant in front of God and man for better or for worse. Well, but, but you know, like this happened and this happened. Listen, just because things get tough, just because there's disagreements sometimes, that is not grounds to do this. So before making this decision to, to take this step, better make sure that we're in prayer, better make sure that we're in the word, better make sure that we've had good counsel, better make sure that we have done everything we can to save this relationship. I've had so many people come in, in my office over the years, and some of them have had every right to step out of the relationship. But they'll ask me, Corey, should I get divorced? And I'll say, listen, I don't, I don't feel comfortable telling you if you should or shouldn't, but I will say this. I want you to be able to stand in front of God and say, I did everything within my power to save this relationship. Everything. We tried counseling. We tried this. We tried that. I, I, I was gracious. I forgave. If you can do everything you can. And here's the thing about that. Just because one has the right to get a divorce doesn't mean that you always have to. God wants things to be reconciled. I could introduce you to couples. Of course, I'm not going to say their names up here that have made it past infidelity, multiple infidelities, that they have made it past even abuse, that they've made it past horrible things, right? That God had changed the hearts of the wife or the husband. And we have seen couples come back together you would have never thought would have made it, but it took hard work. It took counseling. It took the word of God. It took prayer. So I want you to ask yourself, if you're thinking about leaving your spouse, have I done everything within my power to save this relationship? Now, here's the other uncomfortable thing. And guys, I want you guys to hear all this with love. There are some people that have come to me over the years uh, that maybe like 10 or 20 years ago, they got divorced and they shouldn't have. They've remarried, their ex has remarried, and they're like, Corey, what do I do? Do I divorce my wife now or, or do I go back and try to fix that? Now, here's the thing. Two wrongs don't make a right. So what should we do in this moment? If we realize, if you realize today, man, my, my previous marriage, I ended that, and maybe I shouldn't have ended that. That doesn't mean you ruin uh, your, your marriage now. It doesn't mean that you go back and try to ruin their marriage if they're remarried. But you do need to repent if you did something contrary to the word of God. Now, the good news about that is there is life after making mistakes. There's life after divorce. God is gracious. He is good. You can have another healthy relationship, but we have to address things that we've done. Even if it was two decades in the past, we have to address anything we've done contrary to the word of God. Is that fair? Are everyone good with that? 
No one says anything, so I'm going to say yes. Okay, and then the last weird thing is as Jesus is having this conversation about divorce and marriage with the Pharisees, the disciples like John and Peter and James are kind of off to the side. And I don't know if it was John, I don't know who said it, but they're just like, hey, Jesus, if marriage is that tough, can we just not get married? And then Jesus goes into this thing about eunuchs. I don't suggest you Google that unless you have like a safe search on or something like that. But anyways, eunuchs were people that chose not to have sexual desires. I'll just put it like that. And Jesus says there were some people that were born asexual. They just didn't care about ever getting married. There are some people that, that, that chose to do that. There are some people who were kind of forced into a situation to where they couldn't do that. And the reason why Jesus brought eunuchs up is he said, listen, it's okay if you don't want to get married as long as that's God's will. There's, it doesn't make people superior if they're married to single people who aren't married if they're both Christians. Jesus is basically saying, just follow the will of God. If it's God's will for you to be single, that's fine, be single. If it's God's will for you to get married, then you need to get married, right? Just make sure you're following God's will. Okay, last part. Then the children were brought to Jesus from him to place his hands on them and pray, but the disciples rebuked them. Jesus said, leave the children alone and don't try to keep them from coming to me because the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. After placing his hands on them, he went on from there. Just then, someone came up and asked him, teacher, what good must I do to have eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good, Jesus said? There's only one that's good. If you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. Which ones, he asked. Jesus answered, do not murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother and love your neighbor as yourself. I've kept all these, the young man told him. What do I still lack? If you want to be perfect, Jesus said to him, go sell your belongings, give those to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. And when the young man heard that, he went away grieving because he had many possessions. Okay, so as Jesus is wrapping up the, the, the conversation with the Pharisees about divorce, right? They're probably walking away because they're frustrated because they didn't trap him. There's some kids that walk up. Maybe some of the people from the surrounding areas, they wanted Jesus to pray for their kids or maybe just some kids kind of walked up and they had heard about Jesus and wanted to see him. And so Jesus is hugging the kids. He's laying hands on them and praying for them. He's probably talking with them and just kind of shooting the breeze with them. And then as Jesus is doing that, the disciples walk up and they say, hey, get out of here, get out of here because kids were inferior in this culture at this time. So Jesus stopped him. He said, hey, hey, hey don't, don't tell the kids to go away. Don't, don't keep them from coming to me. And the reason why Jesus did that is Jesus wanted his followers to know that it doesn't, it doesn't matter what your age or where you're from, everyone has access to me. If they want to talk to me, I want to talk to them. So Jesus said, it doesn't matter how young you are. If you want to come talk, let's, let's talk. So don't, don't tell them to go away. And if you remember from a couple of weeks ago, Jesus actually used a child as an example of how we should be humble. Remember, Jesus brought a kid up in front of the disciples and he said, if you wanna be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, be like this kid, be humble, be innocent, be trusting in your father. That's how we get to heaven. So what that means is that you don't have to be a kid to get to heaven. What that means is our faith has to be humble, has to be, has to be innocent like a child. We have to be dependent on God. It doesn't matter how old we are. 
Man, if I have learned anything in 2020, it's that I have to be utterly dependent on Jesus Christ because man is gonna mess up, right? As we've constantly seen. It is out of our control, so we have to depend on him. We have to lay down our pride. We have to sacrifice for the greater good of the body of God and the kingdom. So, so it's about self-denial. That's what Christianity is. It's a denial of self, and it's a reliance on something bigger than us, God, right? Our Father, that's how we're supposed to be. So just as Jesus was doing that, you know, maybe the kids are starting to walk away. This young man walks up to Jesus, and this is one of the more infamous characters in, in the New Testament. We've really pegged this guy pretty bad. We call him the rich young ruler. And he walks up to Jesus, and he says, excuse me, teacher, teacher, what do I have to do to gain eternal life? So we can, we can believe that this man was sincere. He genuinely wanted to know an answer. That's a good thing. Not only that, he was respectful. He called him teacher, right? Teacher, rabbi is probably what he said, but rabbi, tell me, how, what, tell me what I can do to inherit eternal life. Now, here is the problem with his question. His question was flawed from the beginning. He said, what do I have to do to gain eternal life? He thought that he could do something, right? That he could check off some boxes. He could follow some rules. He could make sure he crosses every T and dots every I. And by his good work, he could get to heaven. What he's going to find out in this conversation with Jesus is humanity will always struggle with being self-righteous, which means we're trying to be good by our standards. And the only good, though, that we can do, we can never do enough good to get to heaven. The only good we can do is to rely on God's goodness and to do what he tells us to do. Listen, this is a very liberating statement. You will never be good enough to go to heaven. That's a liberating thing. That's not a pessimistic thing. That's a liberating thing. It's liberating because we know that there's nothing we can do, so all we can do is trust in the goodness of our Savior, Jesus. That's why he's called our Savior, because he saves us, because we can't save ourselves. So there's liberation in knowing that we're all gonna fail, but if we trust in him and do what he tells us to do, we'll be justified by him. We'll be set apart so God can use us. We'll be saved. That's a liberating thing. Amen, right? Can I say that? Or I was saved in a Pentecostal church. So anyways, he goes up and Jesus says, well, why are you asking me about what is good? There's only one that's good. And it's not us, right? It's God. So Jesus is saying to him, do what God tells you to do instead of just trying to be good by your own standards. You guys ever talk to someone that's like, oh man, so-and-so, they're a good dude. Oh yeah, she, she's really awesome. She's really good. So we have to define good. If we define good by the world's standards, that falls flat. So, so we have to hold it up to God's standards of what is good. And when it comes to truly good, there's only one that's good. And so this guy, this rich young ruler, he had checked off the boxes. He had, he had done everything that culture had told him to do, right? To be a good person. So he followed the law. He followed the rules. And this is where our, 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 our YouTube and Facebook attendance starts to drop. The problem is this is what the, the, the trap that this young ruler fall in, fell into is he thought that if we could just follow more rules, that would make us better people. It wasn't an issue of the heart. It was an issue of doing more. People have always done this, and we're doing it right now in our culture in a major way, right? And it's why Christianity is tanking in the United States. 
is because we think just by doing rules and passing laws and voting people in that that's gonna make people better. And that has never worked. Do you know that's never worked? Listen, God gave us 10 simple commandments in the Old Testament. In the book of Exodus chapter 20, he gave us 10 simple commandments, the 10 10 commandments. Here's what happened from the book of Exodus way back here to, to the book of Matthew when Jesus comes onto the scene. Humans thought that it wasn't enough to do these simple principles that God gave us that reflect our heart. Four of the Ten Commandments talk about how we relate to God. Six of the Ten Commandments talk about how we relate with each other. That wasn't enough. So what mankind did for thousands and thousands of years is they added amendments to the laws. Sound familiar? And so they add this amendment and this amendment. And by the time Jesus came onto the scene, there were six or seven hundred amendments to the Ten Commandments that were major. And then about another thousand minor amendments added onto that because humanity bought into a lie that following more laws made people better. But Jesus goes deeper than that. Jesus says it's it's deeper than just checking off boxes. What is the state of your heart? Do you know what the law does? Do you know what the law did in the Old Testament? The law did not save people. The law only pointed people to what was evil. It, it, It identified what was wrong. They needed God to save them. So all the law does is point us towards the one that saves us, Jesus. The law in and of itself does not save us. It is a change of heart. And the only one that can change our heart is God. Because even at our best, we still fall short. And we need the grace of God. What do you mean, Corey? So Jesus confronts this in the New Testament. And people are like, well, I follow the Ten Commandments. And Jesus says, have you ever killed anyone? And they're like, no, never broke that law. And Jesus says, well, if you've ever hated anyone, you've committed murder in your heart. Uh Uh-oh, guilty, right? Guilty. A bunch of people say, well, I've never committed adultery. And Jesus says, if you've ever looked at another woman with lust, you've committed adultery in your heart. So it's a state of heart that matters. It's not just about checking off boxes. It's about what is in here. And if the Holy Spirit resides in there, And we can check off all the boxes. Man, I'm rambling now, but it's the 11. We have all the time, right? There's a time in the book of Matthew when people even go up and Jesus says, on the day of judgment, people are gonna say, Lord, Lord, we did all these miracles in your name. We checked off the boxes. And Jesus is gonna say, but you didn't have a relationship with me. I don't know you. That's the Bible, man. And so what we've done in our culture right now I put a post up on Facebook. I should know better by now. I don't do it very often, but every once in a while, I feel like God tells me to because there's so many people that, that, that see my Facebook posts. And I wasn't knocking on anybody. I said, but this is what I said. I said, before you turn on Fox or CNN or your news feed, did you read your Bible today? Before you went through your Instagram and your Facebook, did you pray today? Not against you turning on CNN or Fox. But what drives your worldview, those people? Or do you wake up looking for God to be your worldview? People are like, cool, cool, cool. And then someone's like, well, the problem with Christians is is we don't vote. I don't even know how that applies, but whatever. But here's the thing, guys. If your goal is just to go get a bunch of people to vote, you know what that's like? It's like handing the keys of a Ferrari over to someone that you never taught to drive. Here, make wise decisions with this. Here you go, you're 16. You have the right to do it, but you haven't been trained to do it. The problem isn't that we're not voting. The problem is is we haven't made disciples of Jesus. 
So if we send a bunch of people to voting booths that are not true disciples of Jesus, they're gonna vote from selfish motives. That's why we're in the predicament that we're in right now. Listen, because, and this, again, I have no viewers on YouTube right now. The reason why, you guys can't leave because I can see you. The reason why we are where we are is not because there's the wrong rules or the wrong laws or that we don't have enough. It's because the state of our heart is dark. So Jesus says, let's forget about the rules for a second. Where is your heart? Where is your heart? Why are you doing what you're doing? And what it comes down to is surrender. So Jesus said, did you do all the rules? The guy said, I did all the rules. And then Jesus said, okay, I got one more thing for you. There's this part of your heart that you have not given to me that you refuse to give to me. And for the rich young ruler, it was money. So this is not a universal thing. You all don't have to sell all your goods when you leave here and give it to the poor. That's not for all of us. That was for this man. And Jesus looked at him. He said, you've done all the rules, but there's this one thing you lack. Sell what you love the most and give it to someone else. Look at what he says, though, guys. Look at this. He says, sell what you have, and I will give you riches in heaven. That's a good deal. Jesus says, sell what's temporary, and I will give to you what's eternal. And then after that, he says, and you can walk with me. Look at that. So if I am willing to give up everything, I can walk with God? I can do that? And we forget that it is by giving up it all that we gain it all. Jesus says it right to the man. Give these things up and I'm gonna give you far more than you could ever imagine. You can even walk with me. You can walk with me. Now, a lot of us in this room are like, that's right, rich people, awful. You know what we tend to do when we do that? You know why it's evil to steal from the rich and give to the poor? One, because stealing's wrong. Two, because coveting is also a 10 commandment and we're not supposed to do it. So as a culture, we constantly look at the neighbor across the street and say, how dare they have a nicer house than me? It's not your business. That's covetousness and that's a sin. Exodus chapter 20, look it up, you'll find it. So we are so quick to point out the evil and rich people, right? How dare Jeff Bezos be worth that much? Because he started Amazon and you didn't, right? That's why he's worth that much. I got a degree in English and he started Amazon. That's why he's worth a lot more money than me. It's not my problem. He'll have to stand in front of God and give an account for what he did with $178 billion or whatever it is. But here's the thing. All of us have that thing. Man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hit home here for a second. Some of us value our comfort more than, we, more than we really care about walking with Jesus. Some of us care about our notoriety. Well, I don't want to delete my social media because I'm known there, right? <laughs> what a crock. I'll tell you, my personal one is control. God has, has really worked on me in 2020. I'm a control person. I don't have to control others. I'm not a controlling person of other people, but I want to control myself. I, I'm the guy that has a five-year plan, right? I'm the guy that has everything mapped out. I know what I'm going to be doing this time two years from now. I'm that guy. And what's been hard in 2020 is God's like, you going to give me that control? Have I got your attention, Corey? Because, man, I don't know, I don't know what I'm going to do next Tuesday because everything changes so quick. So I've had to give that control over to God. For some of us, it's not money, but it's race. Listen, there's nothing wrong with you being proud to be black. Nothing wrong with you proud of being Hispanic. Nothing wrong with you proud of being a white person. There's nothing wrong with that. 
But if your identity is wrapped up in that, if that's something that you're just not going to relent on, that's antichrist. Let me tell you how. In Galatians, it says you're not free or slave. You're not Jew or Greek, which is the equivalent in our culture of you're not black or white. You're a Christian or you're not a Christian. Your identity is wrapped up in God, or at least it should be. And so there's things like our race and culture that we just hold back. We give God almost everything, but I'm not gonna give him this. This is too important to me. Politics right now is one of those. Man, I'll tell you what, 98% of everyone that leaves this church is not because of theological teaching. It's because when I start pushing the buttons of how people have made politics an idol in our culture, our culture in our time, that's why people leave our church. I could sit up here and teach the most heretical theological thing in the world and people wouldn't care. But whenever I say something about, you know, Republicans or, or whenever I question the fact that you guys worship the government, people are like, I'm done. He hit that button. That's too sensitive for me. He probably doesn't vote. Maybe I do vote, by the way. Maybe it's our leisure. Maybe we don't want to give up our leisure time. Maybe it's our pleasure, right? Maybe it's our success. What is it to us? What is it to us? See, here's the thing with Jesus. 99% doesn't fly. What I mean is he's not content with just having 99% of you. He wants all of you. Again, I wanna say this again. What is liberating is all of us need to leave this room knowing we're never gonna be good enough. And that is not a pessimistic thing. That's, that's, a, that's liberation. I'm never going to be enough, but I serve a savior that is. I serve a savior that is. And when I stand in front of God, Jesus is going to stand between he and I and he's gonna say, Corey's okay. Corey's okay. It's not because I've been okay. It's because Jesus died on the cross for my sin, right? He justifies me. He stands in the gap for me. That should liberate us. But the problem is, is a lot of us have bought into this lie that if I just check off enough boxes, I'll be good. If I just check off enough boxes. But the problem is, is the state of our heart. The state of our heart. Do you know Jesus in the New Testament took all those rules and he boiled it into two simple phrases. You guys know it. Love God and love others the way you love yourself. That's it. That's it. That's it. Those are the only two rules that encompasses this entire book. Love God, love people. But because our hearts are in the wrong place, we have to make lists. And that's not God's desire. What we need to do is we need to be humble in front of Jesus. And when you say, God, show me the dark corners of my heart. Lord, I go to church. I pay my tithes. I serve on this team. I, you know, I don't throw rocks at my neighbor's house. Like, but God, is there a part of me that, that, that I'm not giving you? Is there a dark corner of my heart that, that maybe I've neglected? Shine the light on that, right? And so it's not that God wants you to do without. I think it's Matthew chapter 10 where Jesus just says, if you'll seek first the kingdom of God, I'll make sure that your kids are fed. I'll make sure that you have everything you need. But the problem is, is we don't seek God first because we don't trust him with the most important things in our life. That means that Jesus wants your marriage. Give your marriage. Jesus wants your children. Jesus wants your finances. If I can be blunt, that's why so many of you have so many financial problems is because we don't do our finances the way the Bible tells us to do our finances. We don't trust God with that side of us. We need, God wants everything. He wants the most important things in our life. And listen, guys, when we submit, 
When we surrender and we give God the good things, our marriage, our finances, our families, our jobs, those things that he wants to be good and flourish, when we give him those things, they do flourish. When we surrender those things over to him, we also have to surrender the things that we really hold on to, like our control, like our future, the things that are tough for us, our anxiety, our sadness, things that we want to hold on to, our identities. We need to relent and give those things. And not only will he make us flourish in this life, he promises us an afterlife, just like he said to the young man. Give me it all now, and I'm going to give you so much more forever, and you can walk with me. You can walk with me. First things first, though. That goes back to what I said earlier. I don't care that you watch Fox or CNN or have an Instagram, but first and foremost, what is your worldview? Is it through the lens of this? Or is it through the lens of all those talking heads that are always getting pummeled at you all the time? What is your lens? What is your worldview? Seek first the kingdom of God. Seek first. Because what we forget, or maybe you never knew this. Maybe you're watching and you're not a believer and you never knew this. Jesus says it is in losing our life that we truly find out what it means to live. It's when we give ourselves up completely to God. God, you have my kids, you have my wife, you have my home, you have this church, you have everything. It's all yours. I trust you with it. It is only then that we understand what it means to truly find joy and peace and contentment. Because you guys know it says in the book of Jeremiah that God has good things for you. He intends good things for you. And when we believe that he's the good father that he is and we can give it all over to him, you can sleep at night. You can smile again. You can raise the children the way you should. You can be the man that you're supposed to be or the woman you're supposed to be. But here's the thing, brothers, sisters, listen to me. Every single one of you in this room is going to come to this crossroad. If you haven't already, some of you already have, but if you haven't, it's coming, I guarantee you. There is this crossroad to where Jesus is going to look at every single one of us and say, I appreciate you following the rules. It's good that you follow the commandments, but there's this part of your heart that you have not given me. You talk more about your politics than you talk about me. You talk more about your nationality than you talk about me. You talk more about the color of your skin than you talk about me. You're worried more about your finances than you are about your relationship with me. Give it. Give it over. And Jesus is going to say, if you want to be perfect, if you want to be complete, if you want to do everything that God wants you to do, I need that 1% too. I need that last thing. And when we're at that crossroad, we have two decisions. We can either walk away sad because it costs us this thing that we have really put our identity into, or we rejoice because, listen, because we know we're going to get something better. It really boils down to trust, doesn't it? Listen, do you guys know everything you have right now is not yours anyways? Do you know that? Every dollar that's in your bank account, your wonderful kids, your marriage, your home, your job, do you know all of that is only because God has been gracious enough to let you borrow it for a while? It's all his. And we have to, we have to, we have to decide in our hearts that it's his. Seek first the kingdom. Seek first the kingdom. Give it all. We have a choice, guys. 
But we have to know that he's a good father, a loving father, that we get to have a relationship with him and that he will reward us for eternity if we were willing to push all of our chips into the center right now. Would you bow your heads with me, please? I wanna encourage you today as your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed and everyone at home watching, I wanna encourage you If you have been reluctant, and listen, maybe here's what we need to do today before we take communion. Maybe we need to pray and say, God, is there a part of my heart that I just haven't given to you? Have I put something before you? Have I failed to trust you with everything? And if that's the case, listen, guys, all we have to do is say, God, I'm sorry. Here it is. God will take it from you and I give you my word. I wanna encourage you in this. If you will give him 100% of your life, every corner of it, you will see such amazing good things happen around you. When we give our marriage to God, when we give our children to God, when we give our money to God, when we give our time to God, when we give our future to God, when we give our security to God, you'll be shocked. You'll be shocked. So if you're in this room and you do not have a relationship with God, but you're curious, up here on my right, your left, is Pastor Muhammad. If you're watching online, email us, info at experiencecc.com, okay? You can come up here and talk to Mo, or you can, you can send us an email, okay? If you're in this room and you need prayer, there's men and women on both sides of the stage. Maybe you just need to come up. They'll stay away from you if you want them to. They got masks on, but maybe you just need someone to pray with you. Man, I have not given over this. Can you just pray that I have the courage to do it? Let someone pray with you. The last thing is, is you have communion in your hands. And if you're at home, hopefully, hopefully you can make the time to do this. Here's what I would like you to think about. That communion represents the body and blood of Jesus Christ that Jesus gave it all for us because he loves us. He loves us. Again, Jeremiah says that he has good things for us, good intentions, good futures for us. He loves us. He's a perfect heavenly father. And we know that because he died for us and he rose again for us and he gives us his Holy Spirit. So maybe today before you take communion, maybe you ask God, God, search my heart. And if there, is, if there is even just 1% of myself that I've not trusted you with, forgive me, Father. And then give it over to him. Father, Lord, I love you. God, I love this church. Lord, I love the men and women of this church. I pray, God, that you just keep them strong, Lord. Father, in the face of all this insanity in our world, in face of all the uncertainty and confusion and anger, God, in, in, in the face of all this, Father, I pray, Lord, that it, that it causes us to trust you more. We have seen the, the, the fallibility of man. So God, Lord, let us lean on you more. Let us trust in you more. Lord, if there's any portion of our hearts that we have not given you, Father, Lord, let us have the courage to do that today. God, we love you. We thank you. We praise you, Lord. We lift you up. Bless my friends. Bless everyone watching online today. Pray all these things in your son's name, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, guys. You're welcome to help yourself.